thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. The Bible reading this afternoon comes from Luke chapter 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip, a, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus re- received bad things. But now he is in comfort here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Well, good evening and welcome. It's good to have you here tonight, uh, part of our service together. For those of you who might be visiting, I'm Mark. I'm the senior pastor here. It's good to have you with us tonight. Um, as Matt mentioned uh, previously, I was in Cambodia over this last week. So thank you to those of you who are praying for myself and for Richard Dwyer. Uh, we flew out on Monday morning, came back Friday morning. And the purpose of the trip was to meet with as many of our current partners that we have in Cambodia. We've been sending uh, teams over to Cambodia now for 10 years now. And so we've built up some fairly strong relationships, but also to explore some potential new partnerships as well. Richard and I managed uh, from Monday night until Thursday afternoon to squeeze in 14 different appointments uh, with various uh, partners. So we met not only with some kind of really big organizations such as Hagar Ministries, which was one of the first Christian NGOs, it seems, to be at work in Cambodia, but also with some relatively new uh, ministries as well. Uh, we were in various parts of Phnom Penh, uh, all kind of all over the place by Tuk-tuk, which is kind of an exciting uh, journey because you're not going very far, but you're not going very fast, so it takes a long time. Uh, we went to a couple of slum communities, uh, which kind of redefines how you think about slums because they're not just people who are uh, poor and impoverished, but they're people who've been impoverished for generations. So the slums have this really kind of solid kind of um, sense to them, you know, great big concrete pylons, houses, satellite dishes, iPhones, the whole lot. They just can't get integrated into society. It was a really kind of interesting time to be away and will shape not only our trip for next year uh, in 2017, but also kind of our ongoing partnership as a church. So thank you for those of you who were praying for us. We were both uh, kept safe, uh, and uh, although we're both a little bit tired, that's about as far as it went. Uh, And we also, I think, discerned a little bit of what God might have in store for us as a church. So you'll be hearing more about that in the days and weeks to come. 
Uh, as uh, Matt also mentioned, we are concluding our series tonight in some of the passages that are unique to Luke. So passages that Luke tells or stories that Luke tells that are not found in the other uh, gospel accounts, in particular Matthew and uh, Mark, uh, who are very, very similar to Luke's account as well. We looked at a handful of the well-known uh, parables uh, and some of the stories that are fairly well-known. If you ever went to Sunday school and those sorts of things, you probably did a craft for some of these stories at some point in time involving glitter and popsicle sticks. Uh, and uh, tonight we're concluding this by looking at this story of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, a story that has a little bit of kind of a, a Dickens-esque feel. If you've ever read or seen the movie A Christmas Carol uh, by Charles Dickens, you might have seen the connections. Both stories deal with people who are very, very wealthy, who see the potential end of the story, and well, at least in Dickens, there's a happy ending out of the, the outcome. Ebenezer Scrooge, who's a Scrooge, doesn't like poor people, doesn't like Christmas, uh, ends up see, being visited by three ghosts of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. He sees a younger, less tarnished view, version of himself. He meets uh, not only the poor that he knows in his own life, particularly his one worker, Tom, uh, sorry, uh, Bob Cratchit, uh, and also in the future he sees his funeral where nobody cares uh, and awakes a changed man. In this parable, uh, we have a wealthy man and a poor man who have some relationship with each other. There's no happy ending, though, uh, though there is some openness to how that ends as well. So we want to have a bit of a look at this story tonight uh, and ask what it has to say for us, because I think it's got a fairly confronting message. But before we do, it's always important to pay attention to the context of the story, to see where it's placed. In other words, is Jesus speaking to a particular person or a group of people? And if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn back in chapter 16 uh, to the very first verse, because this is the immediate context. In chapter 16, verse 1 and following, Jesus tells the story of the parable of the shrewd manager, which is a really weird little parable because basically Jesus tells us that we should all be like this dishonest guy. He's about to get sacked by his boss uh, for being dishonest, and so he actually calls in the debtors that um, owe his boss money and says, how much do you owe my boss? And they say, oh, you know, like 10,000 gallons of oil. And he goes, here, take the receipt, make it 50, and we'll call it deal. Uh, and the boss comes in and says, hey, well done. You know, you ripped me off even more, but at least you've got friends now. Uh, and Jesus says, you should be like the shrewd manager, uh, which leaves us in a little bit of a conundrum because it seems like an immoral example. But here's the really interesting part. Jesus says this in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings, which is an odd little piece of advice for Jesus to give. This then continues on. He begins to talk about uh, some other principles of stewardship. And then in verse 14, we're told that the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And it's out of this context that Jesus speaks. So Jesus has been talking about money for a bit. He's been going on about it, and the Pharisees, were told, the religious leaders of the day, who loved money, were ridiculing Jesus. They thought what he had to say about money was completely ludicrous. And so Jesus tells them this parable, this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, you've already heard it read, so I don't want to reread it for you, but let me draw your attention to some of the key features within the story to, shall I say, bring it into sharp relief and then talk a little bit about the, con the, the, uh, the challenge for us. 
So it begins with two characters, uh, as many of Jesus' parables do, and this time it starts out with a rich man. Now, the rich in uh, Luke's account haven't actually come off looking very good. Uh, We're kind of predisposed, as we've read through Luke's gospel, to suspect that this rich man isn't very nice. Uh, We don't really know. Luke doesn't tell us if he's a nice bloke or not. We're not told if he goes to synagogue and reads the scriptures. We're not told if he prays or any of that sort of stuff. We're just told that he's rich. And he is incredibly rich. So look at the the very brief description of him, and let me kind of pull this out for you. It says that he was dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple was not only a a, a color for royalty, but it was also relatively expensive to produce. Uh, You don't get kind of purple wool, and so you have to dye it, and the dye required for that was actually relatively expensive. In the same way, linen was usually imported from Egypt. So here's a man who dresses in very expensive imported clothes. That's the first thing we're told. We're also told he lived in luxury every day. Now, the the phrase lived in luxury is actually a particular Greek term. It's the same Greek term that is used in chapter 15. In that passage, we're told about a man who has two sons. You, You might know the parable of the prodigal son. And one of his sons, the younger, says to his dad, listen, um... Let me paraphrase. I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance now? His dad says, sure, which is odd. It gives him half the inheritance, and the younger son runs off and wastes it. Uh, Ends up living in complete and utter poverty. He's feeding pigs for a living. He doesn't even get to eat what the pigs do, and he finds himself wishing that he could. That's how bad it had gotten for this young man. And he thinks, I'm going to go home uh, because at least my servants, my dad, they have enough to eat. He comes home, you might remember the story, his dad sees him from a distance, runs over to him, embraces him, says, put some new shoes on the boy, put a new robe on the boy, put a ring on his finger, and let's party. And and the feast, the celebration that is described there is the same word that's used here. So the rich man essentially feasts every single day. Every single day for this man is a party. It's like the sun has come home every day. Imagine how exuberant the the party would have been for this lost son. Everyone would have been celebrating. Everyone would have been invited. The whole community would have been brought in. They slaughtered the fatted calf, for instance. You need, they didn't have a fridge. You had to eat the whole thing that day. So you invite enough people to eat an entire cow together. This is the sort of lifestyle this man has. Every single day he feasts. And he has a house that is so large it even requires a gate. Which may be a little subtle reference to, in the Old Testament, the fact that the gates of a city or a town were often where justice was dispensed. If you had a gripe with someone, you would go to the gate. And at the gate, the town elders would be gathered and their justice would be done, theoretically. This is the excessive wealth of this man which then contrasts quite starkly with Lazarus, who is incredibly and utterly destitute. First of all, the the verb that's used for him kind of laid out or placed there is essentially he was thrown there. Someone kind of dropped him off, almost literally, which suggests, of course, that he can't walk. He's crippled. He is begging for food or help of some description. And he longs, we're told, for uh, the food that just falls off the table. 
Any kind of crumbs, any bit that falls, I would love to eat that. And again, the word longing is not kind of just a, oh, that would be nice to have. It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 5, I believe it is, or 6, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you that if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, they've committed adultery with her in their heart. It's the word looked lustfully. This is not kind of a gentle longing. This is a desperate longing, a deep desire, a dwelt upon longing. This is his entire focus. If only I could have what falls from the table. He's covered in sores, which probably makes him unclean as well as unhealthy, and dogs are licking them. Not sure about the medical value of having dogs lick your open sores, but I'm pretty sure it's not on the kind of list of priorities. If I went to the doctor with an open sore, he probably wouldn't say, you need to find a dog and get it to lick it. That'll take care of it like that. Furthermore, dogs were not the house pets of uh, kind of our modern age. They were disgusting, despicable animals. They probably still are, but we have them in our homes now, right? So... What? You don't agree with that? Every time I watch someone walking their dog and holding the little bag, I think you've been had. But nonetheless, he's got dogs licking his open sores. Huh? That's the situation of this man. Do you see the contrast? It's not just someone who was a little bit well off and someone who wasn't as well off. It's not someone who had a BMW and someone who had to drive a Toyota. Uh, this is the difference between someone who owned a thousand cars and someone who wished they had a bicycle. Uh, this is the, the vast gap between them, an enormous gap between the two of those. This is the, the setting for it. Well, th that then leads to, shall we say, not only an expected outcome, but there's an unexpected twist to their destinies. The, we're told that the beggar died. Wow, that's a surprise, isn't it? Covered in sores, licked by dogs. He died? Oh, I can't believe that. He died. We're not told that he was buried because he probably wasn't. Uh, he was really poor. They probably just left him where he died or threw him in the field or in a ditch or in some open grave, whatever it was. They didn't really care. He was not nearly important enough to be buried. But interestingly, we're told that he is carried by angels to Abraham's side. No one else in Scripture is described as being carried by angels. The closest we get is Elijah, who gets taken into heaven on a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. Uh, we might think of Enoch, the great man of faith, who walked with God and then we're told was no more. The Lord took him. Those are the only two examples. And Lazarus is kind of lumped in with Elijah and Enoch. And he's next to Abram. He's at Abraham's side, the great man of faith, the father of the nation of Israel. The, people, the man about whom both Paul and Jesus would say, if you have faith like Abraham, you are truly a child of God. It's a symbol of protection and comfort. What's more strange, of course, is that the rich man uh, who dies and is buried, we're told, finds himself in Hades. Now, let me just point out that this parable is not about the afterlife. This is not a parable that's meant to tell us exactly what heaven and hell are like. The poor man, interestingly, by the way, he's named. 
We know the poor man's name. He's the only character who's named in any of Jesus's um, parables. We don't know the name of the Good Samaritan. We don't know the name of the prodigal son. We don't know the name of the shepherd who looks for the lost sheep. We don't know the name of the woman who sweeps her house looking for the coin. We know the name of this poor bloke. And his name, Lazarus, means God helps. But here in this story, this rich man ends up not in hell, but in Hades. This is not about the afterlife, as the rest of the parable goes on to make quite clear, because what we find in the rest of the parable is not really a kind of a description of the topography or the geography of heaven and hell. It's something a little bit simpler than that. But while this rich man is in torment, he looks up and sees Abraham far away. Now again, this is not about the afterlife. I don't believe that those who are in torment will be able to see those who aren't and that they'll be able to have a conversation. Besides, Abraham says it's a giant chasm between them, which makes the conversation even more interesting. But nonetheless, the rich man says this. He calls up, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now, let me make a point here. Two points, really. The first is, I think the man is asking for more than just a single drop of water. I think he's asking for some greater comfort than can be given by one drop of water. But more importantly, I want you to notice that he asks Abraham to send the beggar to serve his needs. And notice that he knows his name. The rich man knew his name. He didn't look up and go, that guy to your left looks vaguely familiar. He doesn't look up and say, is that an angel next to you? Could you send him to hell? He looks up and he says, hey, that's Lazarus. He's the bloke who lay outside my house all those years. Can you send him to help me? How arrogant. How utterly arrogant. And Abraham says, well, no. And he gives two reasons. Listen to the first one. Son... Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Does that sound like the salvation story that we talk about as Christians? Where people who have good things automatically go to Hades and people who have bad things automatically go to heaven? Not really. Remember, this is not about the afterlife. It's much, much simpler than that. What this parable is pointing to, though, is that there is some sort of correlation. Now, there's no mention of faith, is there? Which is what we normally associate with kind of getting into heaven about, you know, having faith in Jesus, or I guess in this case, because Jesus hadn't died yet, at least having faith in God. It doesn't say anything about trust. It doesn't say anything about obedience to the law. It doesn't say anything about righteousness or virtue or their character. We have no idea if the rich man got rich because he was just a really good businessman. We have no idea if Lazarus was an utter jerk. All we're told, this is the basis of it is, if good things happen to you in, in this life, you're in a whole heap of trouble in the next. Discuss. Because that's the point of a parable. 
The parables ought to to kind of stick in our heads and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you saying that if I'm rich now that I'm screwed in the afterlife? Is that what you're saying? Jesus is like, I want you to discuss that and kind of let's talk about it. Because that's what this parable is saying. Discuss. Interesting, isn't it? And then Abraham says, oh, by the way, there's a giant chasm and really we can't get to you and you can't get to us, so sorry. Well, the rich man is not to be put off though, is he? comes back with a second request. And again, it's, it's uh, that he wants Lazarus to do something. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Now, interesting again, isn't it? Let them listen to Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to the law. Let them hear the language, not just about, uh, shall we say, salvation, because the law is not about salvation. The law does not make promises about the afterlife. The law does not talk about going to heaven or about going to hell. The law in the Old Testament was almost entirely wrapped around how people treated people on earth, in the here and now how they treated foreigners and widows, how they treated those who were oppressed. That's what the law and the prophets spoke about. Moses, Abraham says, let them listen to Moses. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who knew Moses inside and out, who could recite him backwards if they needed to. Let them listen to Moses, those people who love money. And Abraham replies, and the man says, no. He says, if if someone comes back from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham replies, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You know the end of the story in Luke, don't you? Jesus rises from the dead, and the religious leaders, well, they don't listen to him either. And there's the story. A parable told to people who loved money and ridiculed Jesus because of the way he talked about it. A parable told on the heels of another parable that said, use your wealth to gain friends so that in the end you may enter the eternal dwellings. This parable, I think, has a couple of fairly significant challenges for us, wouldn't you say? And the challenges are fairly straightforward, really. There's two of them. The first is the ethical challenge. The ethical challenge is simply this. Will we do more than learn the name of the beggar at our door? You know, through social media, we hear all sorts of stories of uh, all sorts of people. And at one level, that is utterly crippling. You know, I don't think that this story was written to people who were uh, experiencing the overwhelming sense of need that we encounter every day through social media and the news. But nonetheless, it has something very significant to say about how we treat those in need around us. If we only know the name of people in need and do nothing to help those in need, Jesus says, in essence, that's not kingdom. That's not enough. Remember, in your life, you had plenty of good things. But the second challenge, which is perhaps more significant, is the question of the heart. You see, this rich man wasn't guilty just of being rich. He wasn't guilty just of being excessively rich. He was guilty of being hard-hearted. 
He was guilty of being hard-hearted. How would the story have unfolded if the story had kind of a middle piece? There was a very rich man. He lived in a, a wonderful giant house and had uh, purple and linen clothing and ate luxuriously every single day. And there was a beggar who's laid at his gate named Lazarus who was covered in sores and longed for the food that fell from his table and dogs licked his wounds. But what if this excessively wealthy man had gone out and actually given him a meal and kicked the dogs and shooed him away or whatever it was or brought him into the gate or gave him some sort of job in, in, his, in, his, in, his, in his giant palatial home and then they both died, what would have changed? What if some of the good things that the rich man had gone to the poor man? How would that change things? We don't know. We're not told. This man was not just guilty of being rich. He was guilty of being hard-hearted. He knew the man's name. He knew that he was covered in sores. He knew that he longed for food, and he did absolutely nothing. He was hard-hearted. And the challenge for us, of course, is how do we take both of those challenges together? You know, we spent a few days in Cambodia, Richard and I, and there were some, there were some examples of some pretty extreme poverty. Now, I, mean, I didn't have any money anyways, but would throwing money at that have helped? Not really. Uh, does supporting some of those partners help? Yes, I suppose. There's both the ethical challenge of, of how do we best help those in need, but there's also the heart challenge, isn't there? Was I even moved by what I saw? Was it just people? Was it just things? Was it just some house? Was it just something? Is there anything in me or in us that actually desires to bring about change? Are our hearts hardened and this parable suggests that the state of your heart if you want to know the state of your heart it's indicated by your treatment of the poor this is one indicator you want to know the state of your heart you want to know whether you're hard-hearted or soft-hearted how do you treat those in need and you kind of go oh, that's too simplistic yes it is it's a parable meant to be a discussion starter discuss how hard is your heart Jonathan Edwards was an American theologian of the 18th century, a uh, fairly significant bloke. Uh, some uh, would count him as the greatest American theologian, nonetheless, and that's like 300 years ago now. Uh, he actually preached a sermon in which he dealt with 11 reasons why we don't give. Very interesting. I don't think I could have come up with four, but he came up with 11. They're very good. You want to hear them? You can see if you, how many of you uh, that, that you identify with. Another game to discuss later on. The first reason he deals with is this. If I don't have the right attitude to give, then it's not very useful, is it? If I only give out of a sense of duty, then that's not very good. It's like, you know, when your parents catch you fighting with your siblings and they make you say sorry, and you kind of go, sorry. I mean, it doesn't really count, does it? If I give by going, sorry, does that really count? And Jonathan Edwards basically says, there's lots of things that you just have to do because you should do them. A second one is, uh, if I start giving, then I might become really self-righteous. I start giving money away, I'll start thinking, hey, I'm pretty cool. God must be really happy with me. And I'll get all arrogant and proud and stuff, and that's no good. And Edwards, if I can paraphrase, says, we'll take the risk. He says, I might, uh, he says, it hasn't paid off before. You know, I've given in the past, and you know, I just haven't really felt anything. It hasn't been not good for me. And Edwards says, well, it doesn't have to be good for you. Sometimes the people that we see who are in need are not in desperate need. They're just in a little bit of need. They're not going to die or anything. They just need a little bit of help. 
Well, we can probably still help them nonetheless. Some don't give because the people that I'm giving to aren't nice people. Or perhaps that they uh, were actually, it's their own fault. They made some really stupid decisions and now like it's their own problem. Uh, or they wasted all of their money in the first place and that just illustrates how little character they have. Or we might say that I don't have enough to be able to give. Or we might say that uh, the others don't give, so why should I? Or we might say, well, the law and the government provide for people, so why should I? Eleven reasons why we allow our hearts to become hardened. There's no end of excuses. And this parable strips them all away. As I said, we don't actually know how the Pharisees responded. Those who were mocking Jesus, kind of going, ah, rubbish, you're stupid teaching on money. Make friends so you can enter eternal dwellings, oh, whatever. We don't know how they responded when, they told, when Jesus told this parable. We don't know if some of them kept laughing. We don't know if one or two of them kind of went, oh, yeah. Whether they actually went back to the law, whether they went back to Moses and the prophets and read them again with fresh eyes and saw and realized the error of their ways and changed their whole lives. Whether they had an Ebenezer Scrooge moment and lived completely differently from then on until the end of their days. All we are left with is the question of how are we going to respond to this parable? I think there's a couple of responses. The first is to discuss. Don't leave this here, but have a conversation with others about this. Is it really as black and white as that? Read scripture again and say, is it really black and white? Is, it, is, it, is that what God's saying? Is he saying that if we have good things now, we won't have good things then? What's true about that? What's not true about that? Where's the, where's the kind of the, the, the issue that we need to deal with? The kernel of truth, so to speak. Discuss with one another. So what excuses do we have for not giving? Discuss with one another. So what's the state of your heart? And then I think we need to grapple with how we give, how we provide for those around us. That's not an easy thing to work through. It's not as simple as working out percentages of your pay. It's not as simple as giving to certain charities and not other charities. But the principle is clear. The state of our heart is indicated by how we respond to those in need. And there is no end of need. And once again, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, perhaps one of the places to begin is to ask the Lord to show you who you have compassion for and then begin to show compassion to those people. Start somewhere. We can be so overwhelmed by the need that we never actually start. We'll start. Find someone or something, a, a charity or an organization, something that touches your heart in some way and take a first step. Because Jesus is quite clear about what he believes money should be used for. To make friends in order that we might be welcomed one day into eternal dwellings. Discuss. I'm going to take a moment to pray. We're going to respond in worship and prayer together, and then you can discuss. So will you join me as we pray together? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ongoing, continued challenge it presents to us. We thank you that we are those who are not saved 
by what we do or how much we give or don't give, but are saved by faith. And a story like this, I think, just reminds us that we've been saved by faith, that we've been saved by grace, that it's not of our doing, but it's of yours. And we thank you that it doesn't rely, our salvation does not rely on what we do. And yet, we also realize that because we have been saved, because we have been recipients of such amazing grace, that we are called to live that out in our day-to-day lives. And just as you took pity on us, and just as you, Lord Jesus, set aside your power, your authority, uh, your divinity, and became one of us for our good, we are called to do the same for others. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, we would not be condemned, but that we would be convicted, that we would be those who are moved to consider again how we care for those who are in need. And I would ask Holy Spirit that you would show us not only who we have compassion for, but those first steps to begin to be those who give of the good things that you have given us to those around us. I pray that we might use our wealth to make friends so that we might be those who are welcomed into eternal dwellings. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.